Good morning, Dunbar family. So good to be with you today. I've got my water and I've got some Kleenex in case I sweat too much up here. Um, it is so good to be with you, family. So good to be together, gathered together today. Uh, my name is Dave. I am part of the team here. I watch over the youth and young adults here. And it is my joy to be bringing you God's Word today in our 10 Words Summer Series. And I also want to acknowledge uh, there are kids amongst us. And I want to say that's good. That's really good. We love having the kids in here. And uh, as Pastor West already shared, there's, you know, packs and things if we need those. And some of the kids may have gone to, uh, to the sort of kids area with, with family. So that's awesome. That's, that's really good. Uh, and because the kids are with us today, I thought it'd be perfect to start talking about killing and death. That's actually right. We are actually talking about this today. Traditionally, uh, thou shalt not kill. That's going to be our passage, you know. Uh, you shall not kill. Uh, and so most of kids, young adults, are probably uh, saying, well, duh. <laughs> Why spend a whole long time on this? And it's fair enough. It's kind of one of those things you're like, okay, you shall not kill. But there's actually so, so much more that we can learn from our short passage. It's just really tiny, there's two words, really. So would you turn with me to Exodus chapter 20? You can open up your Bibles, you can open up a Bible app, and when you have that or you're ready, you can stand with me and we're gonna read our very short passage in Exodus chapter 20 and our particular verse 13, and we're gonna read the first two verses as we've done before. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And our verse, you shall not murder. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that you have given us this word, this word for today. And we pray that you would impact us by your word. Increase in us a knowledge of who you are and what you are teaching us. And Lord, may that change who we are and how we live. And so we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, so that was pretty simple, right? No murder. Okay, well, let's get a little bit more defined here. A little bit more defined. Uh, particularly in this sixth commandment in the Bible, in Exodus chapter 20. Uh, one commentator put this definition out, and I thought it was pretty helpful. The sixth commandment forbids the unjust taking of legally innocent life. It applies to murder in cold blood, manslaughter with passionate rage, and negligent homicide resulting from recklessness or carelessness. I know it's kind of a downer, but okay. So the Bible has a lot to say about, about death and about killing and about murder particularly. And there's a lot of wisdom that can be applied, a lot of grace that can be applied. But I think a good summary, if we kind of sum it all up right here in this little passage, if we kind of translate it, you shall not kill unlawfully in an illegal way, an innocent life. Hmm. So what, why would God use valuable space to put these two little words in these 10 words of such deep importance for his people. It must mean that God has a great value on taking life. Let me start with a little story. Um, this is a story of my nerdiness. Uh, when I was a kid, 
and a young person, a youth and teen, I used to love to collect comic books. They're going from death to comic books. Just go with me. Uh, I used to love, love to collect comic books. Now, it was a long time ago. Uh, it was a long time ago, the like, old school comic books. So some of you are thinking, oh, what, what was around back then? Were there even superheroes? There were, okay, there were. Um, you know, all the superheroes like Spider-Man, the X-Men, Avengers, Batman, Justice League. So basically all the movies that we're seeing being made, those were the comic books I collected, okay? So I, I was ahead of the curve. All right, I loved, I loved to go down to the comic book store. There was such a thing called comic book stores. I'd love to go down to comic book stores. And I would go down to one particular one and I would get my comics every week. And there was like cool toys and various things there. I just love, love, love it. And I loved it so much. Loved it so much that I got a job at the ice cream store uh, right, next, right next to the comic book shop. So I had like ice cream on waffle cones and comic books. Yes, right? You're thinking, what a life he had. Now, I started to fancy myself as a little bit of a collector. Some of you, you know, collect other things, stamps and other things. I collected comic books and I was really careful of what I got and I put them in those little bags, you know, those little bags with the mint condition, like perfect condition, and even sometimes get two copies. Oh, number one of Spider-Man this, so I can have two, one to read and one to keep in mint condition, you know, perfect condition. Now, fast forward a bunch of years later in university, I have these boxes of comic books. I kind of not collected as much, I still love them, but uh, my good friend Pete, so we were in university, and uh, Pete was, was over and he was hanging out with me and we were playing some Nintendo, like we're talking original Nintendo, because that's the best one. And uh, he, was, he was not only a comic book collector, but he was so savvy that he actually had a comic book shop, right? So he like took, collected all his comics and then started selling them and he was pretty good at it. So he was a, an expert as it were. So Pete was over playing some Nintendo and he sees my comics. He's like, hey, can I look through those? So he, he's looking through my comics. He's picking out some and I'm thinking, Oh yeah, he's gonna want these because they're pretty, you know, pretty awesome. So he picks up like three, and he goes, like, "Yeah, these may be worth five or ten dollars, but the rest are totally worthless." I'm like, "What, comic book store, Pete? What are you talking about? These are my awesome comics. They have a huge value. Look at, I, I've collected all these number ones and all these things. What do you think you're talking about, comic book, Pete?" Right? And I started to try to convince him of the value of some of these comics, right? This is going to do this and this. I did have a Secret Wars number one, which is going to be a movie, so just so you know. But I was trying to convince Pete, and he was unconvincible. He was like, nope, they are worthless. Little or no value. And here's the switch up. So many ways, you know, we kind of do that same thing when we value ourselves and one another. So often, so often our anxieties and fears and overpacked schedules actually speak a little bit of how we value ourselves and one another. How can I find value? How can I convince others that I have value? And why should I value others? And we probably have a list of things that are kind of our value kind of lists. Maybe it's success, maybe it's education, or the kind of grades I get. Or, or maybe it's cleverness. Wow, she's really clever. Or maybe it's just simply like I just, I'm super high achieving. Maybe it's beauty. Of course, that's one of mine, right? No, I'm just kidding. How about followers on whatever platform, right? Maybe it's family. Maybe that's where I find my value or I value others through what I think about family. Maybe it's artistry. Maybe it's athleticism. 
Maybe it's coolness, right? Says the youth pastor who's not cool. Anyways, the list could go on and on and on. Now, I don't know about you, so I'll just speak for myself. One of the things I do, and I have my personal filter that gets a little, you know, dirty or rusty, um, I get a little judgy. No one else here does that, but just me. We'll just talk about me. When my filter, my Jesus filter gets a little bit dirty, I get a bit judgy. I value others on what they can do for me. And then I sometimes value myself on what I've accomplished, what I've earned. Now, as a foster parent, this is something I have to really watch in myself because how, you know, how valuable am I to these kids? What am I doing? How am I doing? Am I doing enough? Am I ever doing enough for this and this and this and this? Am I ever cool enough? Like, I'm the cool foster dad. Let's go get ice cream, right? I am valuing myself. And then how am I valuing them? Well, this kid is just being today. So I'm going to value them maybe lower. But is this the way God values? So for the rest of our time today, I just want to talk about two things. Just two things. How God values life, how God values life, and when we look and listen to Jesus, how that understanding increases and the value goes up. So in our simple passage, God is speaking much more about value about life than than just the details of murder. Our passage is, yes, about taking life, yes, but it's much more about the foundations of God's value for life. Now, I I love what my former professor and pastor, one of my theological heroes, a guy named J.I. Packer, he says about this little sort of section in the Ten Commandments, this little verse. Um, So if you don't know who G.I. Packer is, just imagine Obi-Wan Kenobi, but like a Christian guy, okay? So this guy was brilliant, maybe one of the smartest people I have ever met in person. Genius. This is what he said in his little book. This is what you shall not murder means. Life is sacred. That's what he said. Life is sacred. So it's not just about Murder, killing is bad, true enough, but life is sacred. So what could Packer mean by this little phrase, life is sacred? Okay, yeah, life is important. Life is special. Life is to be treated with reverence. But I think if we want to simplify even more, he's saying all life belongs to God. All life belongs to God. And if we want to be even more clear, go even deeper into this. Now, don't get me wrong. Animals and trees are a special part of God's creation. He loves them, okay? But there's something particular, something special about people. And what this command is speaking to is that human life is sacred. Human life belongs to God. Just rest on that for a second. Now, we're going to take just a moment to look at the foundations, things that kind of keep us understanding what, what this actually might mean in this truth that we can build on when Jesus, when we come to Jesus. So we're just going to look at a few little foundational truths in the book of Genesis. Would you go there with me? So the first is this. It's pretty simple. God is the author of life. God himself is the author of life. And the second is this, that human life carries the likeness and value 
of God, the likeness and value of God. So we're talking about life is sacred. All life belongs to God. So the first thing I want to talk about is Lego. Um, okay, I love playing Lego with the kids, partially because I just like Lego, okay? I've always liked Lego, even the little space guys back in the day, right? I love playing Lego. And one of the little guys I care for, he just turned five, he finds Lego very frustrating. Not just that the pieces are hard to put together with your little fingers, right? But often when he makes some really cool creation or building, it just often falls apart really easily, right? And why? Because he hasn't built the foundations. And then when I tell him he hasn't built the foundations, he does not listen. So he's very frustrated building with Lego. And uh, yesterday, he took this creation. He was like, I hate Duplo. And you know, Duplo is the bigger one. He like, smashed it on the floor and it scattered everywhere, right? Now, in a similar way, we're kind of like that. We kind of fall apart when we don't have a strong foundation. And so the very strongest foundation we can have in our life is the foundation of God himself. So when we read, do not murder or un unlawfully take life, this word is building on the foundations of what God has already done. So when we look back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see that life comes from God, from His Word, from Him speaking life into being. And the poetry and the pictures of this amazing account are meant to draw our attention to the maker of life. And there's all sorts of beautiful things we can do with that and, and discover from that, even think scientifically about that. But the meaning and make, the reason for this beautiful these beautiful passages is to draw our attention to the maker of life. So let's listen to this description. We're just going to listen to little bits and pieces of this description in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And, and most of you are very familiar with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was empty, empty and formless. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was over, hovering over the waters. And if we go down to verse 20 in chapter 1, and God said, let the water teem with living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing in, with which the water teems that moves about in it according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. Stunning descriptions of God the creator and his relationship and his value of his creation. The fruitfulness and abundance and value to God of his good creation. Then, if we zoom in to Genesis 2, 7, listen to these famous verses. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. What a beautiful picture. Can you hear the intimacy and love and how God delights to get his hands messy and dirty making humanity, and we're still messy and dirty. And can you hear the singular source of where life comes from, from the Lord God, his breath giving life so that humanity may live. So, God gives life. Life comes from God. God gives value to life 
simply by gifting it to us. And now the second half of this story is even more stunning. Verse 26 of chapter 1 in Genesis, Then God said, let, me, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. And here it is. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Humanity is made in God's image. God has given us the gift of bearing his likeness, his character, his relationships. We are made with the stamp of God, the very fingerprint of God that we hold dignity and wonder and beauty in just who we are as God's image-bearing people. In other words, every human life has special value because we were made by God, for God, to reflect who God is. So the value of life is amazing. And your value as God's creation, as image bearers, is beyond our imagination. And so do you know this? Do you know that you are loved and valued by God? That's foundational. Loved and valued so much that every breath, and as Jesus teaches us, even each hair on your head is so precious to him. And your beard too, I'm sure. Do you know he made you uniquely and wonderfully to know and be known? Do you know this? So in summary, with what we've been talking about just so far, I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones does as she translates the beginning of the Bible. And I don't know about you, some kids, certainly literature and some kids' Bible stuff is so good. Like, I like cry when I read it. I might cry when I read this. Let me read what she kind of summarizes as the beginnings. So God breathed life into Adam and Eve. When they opened their eyes, the first thing they ever saw was God's face. And when God saw them, he was like a new dad. You look like me, he said. You are the most beautiful thing I've ever made. God loved them with all his heart, and they were lovely because he loved them. So when we look at our passage, you shall not murder, here's what makes taking life unlawfully so terrible, such a violation of what God intends, such a violation of the value that God has on every human being. And we actually have an example, a foundational example, of what God thinks about taking human life. And the story of Cain and Abel, it's an ugly story, but it helps us to shift now a little bit into how Jesus increases our understanding of this word about life and taking a life. Now, I'm not going to dwell too long on the story of these two brothers, Cain and Abel, but it's helpful to us to consider how much God is calling us to how much more God is calling us to in refraining from taking a life. 
So Genesis 4.2, just a few chapters later, these brothers. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, do you notice, there's many things to notice here, but do you notice how God points out Cain's anger and his jealousy and even hatred and even the serious consequences of sin crouching at the door because of it? Now, most of us know that Cain gives in to this anger and hatred and took the life of his brother Abel. And in verses 9 and 10, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord is asking Cain if he values his brother. And Cain responds with a question, basically, why should I? Which says, I don't value him, and nor am I responsible for him. But God is very clear. I value Abel's life. You are responsible for him. In verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. There's a serious consequence here. Life is sacred. God does value every human life. Every human life bears his image and holds a sacred dignity and value. God does call us to responsibility, and we'll talk a bit about that in a minute. Am I my brother's keeper or my sister's keeper, my neighbor's keeper? How do we see others? How do we relate to others? And as we approach Jesus, he shows us that life is more. Life is more sacred, more valuable to God than we know. And whether we believe in God or we kind of have a relationship with God or not, most of us, most of us would probably agree that it's a bad idea to kill someone, right? If not just for the fact that we probably get caught now, some of you are, are mystery buffs or you, you love those mystery shows, right? Those shows pretty much show us that there's some pretty fancy ways of giving, getting evidence, so it would be really hard to get away, right? Now, even one of my favorite shows, Scooby-Doo, reminds us that no matter how clever your disguise is, the bad guy, they almost always get it in the end with like, and I would have got away with it if it weren't for you meddlesome kids, right? So we, we realize that doing the wrong thing, we, we could get caught. So like, killing, not a great idea, right? So if we're at least kind of convinced that murder is a bad idea, then why not just go, okay, well done, we can end here, it's hot, let's finish up. Well, we can't just end there because there's more, and it's really good. Just like in the Cain and Abel story, Jesus gets to the heart of the commandment. Our word in Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Jesus helps us to see that there is more, more to the story and more to life. Now, there is some bad news, but there's also some really good news. So, you shall not murder. Well, I don't know about you, but I have not. So, pass, I've done it. Yay. 
Now, again, I don't know about you, maybe I'm just talking about myself here, but sometimes when I've given a, get a, given a task, or uh, I give a task maybe, we see kind of just the, the minimum done in requirement to pass the kind of muster. Now some of you kids and young people, I'll speak to you just for a moment. When you're told maybe, clean your room, what does that actually mean, right? Maybe it means to shove everything I own, including all the dirty bowls and things that have some sort of milk product under my bed or in the closet, right? Why is it always milk products? <laughs> clean my room, done, right? And of course, no one is gonna find that moldy sandwich that I left in my lunch kit until months later, right? Here's the bad news. This isn't just a pass-fail. Here's the task, do it, sort of. The bad news is telling us basically that no murder is the minimum. It's the basic entry level of life as God calls us. It's the basics. Now we've been there before, but let's go to Matthew chapter 5 as Jesus explains this very commandment. In Matthew 5 verse 21, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, right? That's our verse. And anyone who murders is subject to judgment. So there's a serious consequence to doing this. Not only a temporal consequence right in the moment, but also an eternal consequence. And Jesus says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother, raka, which is like this angry kind of word, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, which is this kind of mockery or treating someone badly, will be in danger of the fire of hell. As always, Jesus gets to the heart of the problem of sin. Sin and rebellion against God. Now, if we remember the Cain and Abel story, do you remember that anger and hatred are actually at the root of Cain's actions. They're hiding at his door. His thoughts, his words, as well as his deeds reflect this, especially in his attitude and on his face. Now, I don't know if you've ever met a toddler, but their attitude is often on their face. Actually, all of us, that's probably true for us, but like on there, like you get the, mm. so yesterday one of my little guys was angry with me. I'm telling him, put on your shoes, and he has not, and his face was like, I am angry, I can't want to kill you right now. Why? I don't know. It's just a thing. And Jesus tells us that we're pretty much the same. We wear our stuff. It's in us. So, friends, what makes you angry? What makes you angry? Is it politics? Ooh, politics. My poor mom is just caught up in politics. She gets very angry. How about family? The family make you angry? Hmm? We're close to them. They're doing things, whether it's you know, the kids, or the kids, or siblings, oh, my siblings, or it's like, oh, my parents. Who, who makes you angry? Hmm? How about uh, bad driving? Bad driving makes me very angry. H how about something that's a little deeper, like injustice or abuse? How about personal, like being ignored or dismissed or rejected or betrayed? Ooh, that's a hard one. How about being mocked and, and being rude to? How about just simply when things don't go your way? Does that make you angry? Makes me angry. And maybe when you're a little kid, everything makes you angry, like the color of your towel. I don't know why that makes you angry, but you're angry about your towel. 
How about this? How about losing a friendship? How about just a bad TV show? Like, I thought this was going to be good. It's the worst show. I'm really angry about it. How about people in general? Just people make me angry. And uh, just a story from a few weeks ago. One of my little guys lost it because the cat had barfed in his room. It was not my cat or my room, but the cat had barfed in his room, and he let the entire neighborhood know that he was very upset. What makes you angry? Now, before we go any further, the Bible is not telling us that it's wrong to get angry about evil or injustice. It is not tell- in fact, it's very clear that God gets very angry about injustice and evil. But Jesus is very clear that any kind of anger can become sin when it's not dealt with. And we're reminded in the Bible that vengeance is not ours. It belongs to God. And I love what, what Calvin says about that anger that's kind of in us, that, that murder that's kind of Jesus is talking about. He calls it concealed hatred, for that hiding hatred. It's kind of hiding in you, or murder of the heart. And most of us could admit there's some hiding stuff in us, right? And so in this very passage, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus goes on to give actually examples of anger against family and friends, and also anger against like an enemy or adversary. His, anger to, his, his answer to both is actually to reconcile and settle matters as soon as possible, as soon as possible. And the Bible calls that making peace so far as you're able. Reconcile, settle matters, but I'm angry. How can we do this? How is this even possible? And should it even be possible? Well, let's go back to the source of life to find what God wants for us. Do you remember that you and all of humanity are made in His image, made in love, made for Him? And ultimately, you and I can't do this reconciliation thing without the love of Jesus, without kind of repenting from our stuff, turning away from our stuff and turning to Jesus and receiving and living out of the forgiveness of Jesus. We're actually empowered. We're actually given power by God, by His Holy Spirit, to follow this command. Not just at a minimum, at the entry level, but actually to truly live it out in Christ. Not only you shall not murder, but as Jesus shows us, additionally, you shall not murder in your heart. So for our final few minutes, I'd love to point out just... One way we can kind of deal with this, just one way, with this murder in our hearts, this concealed hatred, this this anger that kind of turns into kind of sin and this murder in our heart, and to allow God to cleanse and empower us, to, to bear even more clearly the image of God. So to help us, I just have kind of one question, one, one question to kind of help us as we kind of wrap up. Do you understand that the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross not only transforms your life, but the lives all around you? The forgiveness of Jesus on that cross transforms your life, but also the lives all around you. Again, our passage, Exodus 20, 13, you shall not murder. Well, the only way we can truly follow this command 
is through the cross of Christ. And the cross of Christ is the love of God on display. Do you understand that the forgiveness of Jesus, the love that Jesus has for you on the cross transforms not only your life, but the life, the lives all around you? How does that happen? Well, most of us know that, that Jesus, when he's teaching us to pray, he teaches us to pray for forgiveness. Ooh, forgiveness. Is that where we're going? Yes, it is. He teaches us to forgive, be forgiven, even as we forgive others. How's that possible? Well, quite simply, we just have to look to Jesus, look to his cross. And here's the clincher. Even as Jesus himself, the Son of God, the Son of Man, was being killed, murdered in the greatest pain, betrayal. Even though he was sinless, he was becoming sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Even in that space of pain where he sweat like drops of blood, his words are not filled with anger or hatred, but they are words of love, of life, words of forgiveness. Let's go to the cross just for a moment in Luke chapter 23. And maybe this is a familiar passage where you have the, the two thieves and Jesus on the cross. Verse 32 says this, two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. Murdered. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And you know these words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, even as they were dividing up his clothes by casting lots. Forgiveness, even for those killing, even those murdering him. Oh, look to Jesus. Jesus forgives all our sin on the cross. Even the sin of murder, even the sin of murder in the heart. All you have to do is turn to him and trust him. He is giving his infinite life of infinite value for you because he values you. Because he values you. And you see that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this law. Not just you shall not murder, but better. In Matthew 22, when he's asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? It's covering all these Ten Commandments and even more. Jesus replied, familiar words, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you understand that the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross transforms not only your life, but the lives all around you? You and I are given a sacred life by God to know him, to worship him, to love and adore him as you reflect and bear his image more and more and more. And you and I are called to love others, love our neighbor. 
We are called to love the sacred life in others. So as we come to a conclusion, what do you want to take home with you from the sixth command? You shall not murder. Well, the command reminds us that life is sacred and belongs to God. Our life and the life of others as well. And life is even more valuable as we look to the cross of Jesus. Could this mean that as a Christian community, as a Christian family, we value life, every life, and are called to do the opposite of, of murder and destruction of Satan and the enemy? But instead, to the abundance and fullness of life that Jesus calls us to. How can we bring this forgiveness and reconciliation and may I even add more, even push us more by the Spirit of God into defending life, not just having it okay around us, but actually defending life, not just no murder, but in fact defending it instead. Not just replacing murder, but actually bringing an abundance of life. So ponder with me just as we close. What can you and I do to reject the bitterness and vengeance of murder in our hearts, that concealed anger? What can you do to defend life as a Christian community that follows Jesus in, in truth and love? How can we be defenders of life and repent from hatred? Perhaps for us, I wonder, if it's defending the lives of those who are marginalized and those who are who are seen as different, those who, who are powerless, those who've experienced great trauma. Perhaps for us, it's, it's loving and defending life from its very beginnings to its very end and everything in between. Perhaps, and I encourage us, that we are called to loving and guarding the lives of those who even hold different worldviews to us, even different religions, even a different understanding of sexuality and gender, while we still stay true to what we know about who God is and His truth. Life is sacred. Life is more. So I wonder how God is calling us as we're sent out to defend life. Because life belongs to God. And friends, maybe be more and more like Jesus loving, and even defending life. Amen?